morning. Welcome to Woods Edge this morning. My name is Michael Micken. I'm the executive pastor of missions here at Woods Edge, and it is so wonderful to worship the Lord with you guys this morning. I also want to say a special hello, welcome to those of you joining us through online church. Hundreds of you join us every week, and we are so glad that you're a part of the service with us as well. Well, if you're new here to Woods Edge or you've been coming for a while, I want to encourage you to fill out that Connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you're looking for information on Woods Edge, if you want to find out how to get connected in a group or just want to find your place in service, that's a great way to help us come alongside you to help you take your next steps here at Woods Edge. Also, we believe that prayer is the real work here at Woods Edge. And we want to ask you if there's some way that we can pray with you, that we can come alongside you and stand with you in prayer, please fill out that prayer request card that's also in the seat back in front of you. You can drop both the Connect card and the prayer request in the offering boxes on your way out this morning along with your tithes and offerings. If you are a first-time guest, a special welcome to you. Please stop by the Information Center on your way out this morning. We have a special gift that we'd love to give to you. Well, before Christian Rose comes to bring the word of the Lord to us this morning, I want to introduce a special guest, Steve Spear with World Vision, is going to talk to us this morning about an opportunity to bring clean water to children across the world in a fun, unique, and challenging way. Steve? Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, Woods Edge, it's awesome being with you. So I have a big announcement for you. Uh, today we're launching the 2020 Houston Marathon Woods Edge Team World Vision Half and Full Marathon Running Teams. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I know, I completely know I lost like 90% of you because I use the words marathon and running in the same sentence. If that's you, that was me just a few years ago when I was encouraged to run a marathon. I didn't want to. I hated running and wanted nothing to do with a marathon. But God called me beyond my fears, pushed me out of my comfort zone, and I said yes. Matter of fact, I had four goals for my first marathon. Goal number one was just to hate running less every time I ran. Goal two was to train well enough to make it to the starting line. Third goal was to finish before they closed the course. These were not high goals, you guys. And then the fourth goal was to raise $1,000 for kids and families. Uh, here's the deal. I got two things for you. You can do this. You can do this. No matter what size you are, what shape you are, whether you're between the ages of 13 and 93, you can do this. I say 93 because last year I saw a 96-year-old woman cross the finish line of the Detroit Marathon. You can do this. Uh, we have a couch-to-finish line training plan. We'll take you from the couch to the finish line and then right back to the couch again afterwards. <laughs> we'll do this. The second thing you need to know is why you'll be doing this. You'll be doing this to bring clean water, hope, and life in its fullness to children. Uh, the image coming up is a picture of our World Vision sponsor child. This is when I first met Winnie. And on this day when I first met her near her little home in rural Kenya, we walked for water, one mile out to their water source. We got there. You can see it in this image. It was a contaminated water source. It's where they wash what little clothes they have. It's where they bathe. And on that same day, I saw livestock drinking around the perimeter of this pond and relieving themselves. This was their water source. And then I dipped that five-gallon container in, pulled it out, knowing that half the water in that container would kill half the kids under the age of five in Winnie's Village. It's called the infant mortality rate. And then I carried it one mile back, weighed 50 pounds full, and that walk wrecked me. 
But then I thought, wait a second. If I can run a few miles or run, walk a few miles and invite some other people to do this with us, we can make a difference in the lives of Winnie and thousands of children like her. So here's what's going to happen. Right after the service, we're going to hold a brief 10-minute info session right here in this section. You all don't even need to move. You can stay right here. <laughs> Coming up to the info session doesn't commit you to running. It just means you're going to come and get some more information. And we're only going to be doing this today. We're going to roll a video right now, and while this video rolls, my hunch is there's going to be two big voices inside your head. One voice is going to be loud, and it's going to be saying, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You can't run, a, run walk, a half or a full marathon. But then there's going to be a softer voice that says, do this. You should really do this. And I hope you listen to that soft enough voice just long enough to hang out with us for the info session. In 2006, one man heard a divine whisper that he could help the most vulnerable kids in the world by running marathons. So he said yes. He felt God ask him to invite others into the same vision, so he did. Many people felt scared of the unknown. Fear prevailed, and they said no. But many people pushed through that fear, and they said yes. The first year, 100 people said yes. The next year, 400 said yes then 1,000, then 2,000. As people said yes to new challenges and to changing the lives of kids and communities in Africa, their own lives started to change in drastic ways. I started this year, this is my first year. I have only been out of a wheelchair for two years now. In the beginning I was like, mm, my knees, I got too much weight, mm, hold on. But I stuck with it. And I just went all in. I thought I'm 55, why not? Bev did it at 60, I'll do it at 55. <laughs> This has really brought me back, helped me recommit my life to the Lord, but uh, also to those less fortunate. And plus the goal of like bringing clean water, that, like that's beautiful, so I was like, this is something I really want to do. We really did a lot of training, just the two of us, and it was just such a bonding moment of yeah. that, that time when you, your, your strength is faltering and the person next to you yeah. carries you through it. Well, I've lost 75 pounds through this, and I couldn't imagine my seven-year-old having to go run and get water for our family, so that's what keeps me motivated and focused. I plan on running a marathon every single year until I die. Whoa! We'll see how that happens or how that goes. Over the last 10 years, over 25,000 people have joined Team World Vision and they just keep saying that magic word, yes. Every one of those yeses also represents kids in Africa who get to say yes to life, yes to health, yes to an education, yes to hope. Hundreds of thousands of kids. Every movement, every revival, every revolution in the history of mankind has begun because someone said yes. They are yes people. We are yes people. You are one too. As long as there are children in this world without clean water, we will continue saying yes. That's awesome. Let's do that. Let's, let's make sure there's more clean water for kids around the world. And uh, they're pretty serious about this. I told Steve after the first service, like, Steve, I can't do it. And he held me down and shaved my head until I relented <laughs> and said, all right, I'll join your team. So they, they mean business today. <clears throat> hey, let's, uh, let's pray briefly as we, as we open the scripture. Father, as we turn now to open your word, we, we want and we need to hear from you. And so we ask that you would 
Give us the fullness of your spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us clarity so that we can be those who hear and respond. And uh, God, we, more than anything today, we want to know you and to love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We're going to read our passage today from Philippians 1, starting in verse 18b through 27. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. I received heavy news this week, uh, which some of you might have as well. I got an email Wednesday night that a friend of mine and a friend of, of many of you as well, Mark Siebert, passed away Wednesday. And you may know Mark and Glenna. Glenna has been on staff here at Woods Edge for a number of years. Uh, they have a daughter, Kelly, and her husband, Bill, and six beautiful grandchildren. Mark was a good friend, and I was very sad to hear of his passing. Uh, there's going to be a memorial service or a visitation this Friday night and a memorial service Saturday. Uh, details are available here. If you'd like to join for that service, Galena has invited you to do so. Last Sunday, a week ago today, uh, I had the pleasure of actually serving with Mark in the third grade Sunday school class. I only serve in children's about a couple times a year, and, uh, but Mark served weekly for the last two years in the third grade class. And he didn't have any kids or uh, grandkids in that class that I know of. He just Felt God calling him to serve those children. And so every week when uh, my oldest son, Cademan, is, is in third grade, and so each week that we would drop off or pick up, I got to interact with Mark, and he would give me his signature warm smile and his very joyful greeting. And uh, I had really, really enjoyed Mark, and over the last couple of years, gotten to know him, primarily because he was so friendly, and he was just very encouraging and engaging. And, uh, and if you met Mark, I'm sure your experience was the same. Um, but what was, what was really interesting was the privilege of being with him in this class, this last week, his final Sunday school class with these children. He knew every one of their names and their stories, and, and, uh, and in his closing remarks, he said something that was really, really profound. I'm going to paraphrase. He said it better than I will, but here's essentially what he said in closing. The highest and best thing we can do with our lives is to use the gifts and talents that God has given us for the glory of God and the good of others, and to have a single ambition in life, to honor God and magnify Christ in our bodies. And 
you know, he's, he's teaching this to a bunch of rambunctious, knuckle-headed third graders. They're not always the most receptive crowd. And yet he was so faithful in preparation and patient in his delivery. And he was holding out to them the words of life. And what was also powerful to me as he, as he said that is, if, if you knew Mark, you, you might know that the last 16 years or so, he struggled with a medical condition called inclusion body myositis, which was a progressive muscular disorder. And so he was weakening and eventually ended up bound in a wheelchair. And so Mark, who is, who is in this wheelchair and, and, and trying to patiently wrangle these third graders, is talking about how it should be our ambition that Christ would be honored in our body. And as he spoke those words, I know that he was struggling and suffering with, with illness. And so when I, when I got this email Wednesday night that he had passed, I was really, really devastated but the Lord brought to mind his closing words from that last Sunday school class, and God brought to mind this passage. So I had actually written a different sermon, uh, and it was about to turn in the notes, uh, and I really sensed the Lord say, no, that sermon, we can talk about that later, but, um, but let's, let's talk about this passage. And so today, if it's okay, we're just gonna, we're going to, uh, in the spirit of Mark's closing words in this passage, we're going to make a couple, couple observations from what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in Philippians 1. I read a book called The Road to Character by David Brooks. I don't know if you know David Brooks. He's a columnist for the New York Times. If you're allergic to the New York Times, you might still like David. He is a conservative voice at the paper. Uh, And he's written uh, several really good books, this being one of them. And he asks an opening question in the book that I think gets to really what Mark was sharing. And he asked the opening question this way. Are you living for your resume or are you living for your eulogy? He says, it occurred to me that there were two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that, you, that, that are talked about at your funeral, whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Were you capable of deep love? And that is a salient question worth considering today. And I think this passage in Philippians 1 actually gives us as Christians some context and some orientation for how we might respond to this question. And as we look at this passage and what Paul has written here, one thing that we see is that for the Christian, as we consider our life, we know that the outcome is secure and our treasure is certain. The outcome is secure and our treasure is certain. Look at the text. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Now recall that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's shackled behind bars, under guard, doesn't really know what's going to happen. Many of other uh, of his friends and coworkers had been executed and would be executed. And yet he says, I will rejoice, for I know, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is saying that he has confidence in this sovereign God who makes the outcome secure such that even when he's in shackles, even when he's in prison, he's confident that the outcome is secure. He goes on to say in verse 20 that his hope is he will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, saying even in this desperate place, I'm confident that because the outcome is secure, I can live with courage. Even if I'm afraid, I can live with courage because I know that God is in control. He goes on to say here in verse uh, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. One of the most beautiful sentences in the Bible, I think. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I were to try to tell you how I actually live my life and put it in parallel phrasing, it might, say, it might sound something like this. For to me, to live is my resume and to die is loss. For to me, to live are my accomplishments and my accumulations and my accolades, and to die is my forfeiture of those things. That's, if I'm being honest, how I might describe my actual life. Not how I think it should be lived, but how it is lived. But this truth that Paul preaches, that the outcome is secure and our treasure is certain for those of us who honor Jesus and, and worship in their lives, it provides us a rootedness and a foundation that empowers Paul's choices in ministry and can, likewise, empower our choices in our life to live with the same courage that Paul lived with. We recognize that life is fleeting, but God graciously uses the passing of friends and family, like Mark, to remind us of this truth because we tend to forget. Life is fleeting. It's momentary. The Bible says it's but a mist. We are here today and then tomorrow we're gone. Yet, despite the fact that we know that, we focus on material ambition and accomplishments and accumulation. In other words, we fixate on our, what Brooks calls our resume virtues. That's what we fixate on so often. We're tempted to say, for to me to live is my resume and to die is my loss. But to rely on our resume and to live for our resume is foolish. And we know this, I think. And to illustrate this point, I'm going to share with you, if I may, a couple of bullet points from my resume. Let me tell you about a few things that I've accomplished in my life. I one time won grand prize in an art contest. It was a watercolor on canvas, and I won first prize. And it was, a really, it was actually a really competitive um, show because everyone in my third grade class was in this thing. <laughs> and, but when I won... Purple ribbon right there on the page. I'm, I was the winner of that contest. And then that same year, third grade, I began a dynasty of sorts when I won back-to-back-to-back invention conventions. So do you remember mid-90s, Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, you know that famous picture where he's like hugging the trophy and he's holding up three fingers, three-peat, they won it three times in a row. I was kind of the Michael Jordan of Jess Harbin Elementary School Invention Convention. And I'm not overstating it, that's just the fact. I mean, that's just true. And then when I was 15, I, I couldn't quite drive yet, but I was getting close. I was publicly presented an award for being the best freshman athlete at my school. Now, none of you are remotely impressed by those things, are you? Because they are silly, prepubescent accomplishments that mean nothing. But listen, my, my resume has been updated since then. It's now full of more recent accomplishments, things of more mature substance. But I, it would be foolish of me to think that my current resume is any more impressive than my elementary school resume. None of you would be impressed by it. And even if you were, ultimately, everything I do and everything I accomplish will be forgotten within 50 years of my death. What seems most important to me every day, me and my life, won't even be remembered 100 years from now. But if I'm being honest with you, and I am, I find much of my identity in those things, and secretly, I want you to know 
about the things that I've accomplished. Because I think that maybe if you know the things that I've accomplished, maybe you'll think highly of me. Maybe I can feel validated if people would know and celebrate what I've done, what's on my resume. And yet the hope of the Christian gospel is singular, that all other pathways and promises, all the things that we might put our hope in, are ultimately worse than empty. They're not empty, they're worse than empty. Putting our hope in anything other than Jesus, like these resume virtues and our accomplishments and accolades and accumulations, it's not just ineffective, it's completely impotent. It would be like if I went to the doctor and he diagnosed me with a critical heart condition and prescribed for me some medication to manage it, and instead of going to the pharmacy to get legitimate pharmaceuticals to respond to this, and instead I thought, I'll save some money and I'll just go to the shady corner drug dealer and buy a bottle of pills from him. Those pills aren't just a placebo, they're poison. It's doing the opposite of what I need it to do. Because you know what happens to our resumes if that's what we live for? You know what happens to the resume? It crumbles. It just disintegrates. I mean, let me tell you about the other side of those resume bullet points. When I won the art contest and that ribbon, I literally never won anything in art again. I peaked as a, nine, as a, as a seven-year-old or nine-year-old as an artist. After winning the invention convention three times in a row, I lost in the sixth grade and have never surpassed my 12-year-old creative ingenuity. As an engineer and an inventor, I peaked at 12 years old. <laughs> I was named the best all-around athlete my freshman year of high school, at which time I gradually plateaued to average. I peaked as an athlete at 16 years old. And anything else that I would tell you about my modern current resume would be similar, right? It might, for a moment, have the semblance of being impressive, and then quickly it just dissolves and fades away, right? I mean, listen, even if you played in the NFL, wow, you played in the NFL? You're like one of the best football players in the whole country. Oh, but you, you won zero Super Bowls. Oh you're, not, oh, you're not in the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, e even if you reach the pinnacle, it's, it's really just not that impressive. Who won the Super Bowl seven years ago? I, I don't know. Yeah, sounds like one guy knows. That's right. <laughs> so the, no, no one else did, so the point stands, all right? <laughs> hey, man, you're killing my illustration here. This, <laughs> yeah, got a heckler over there. The Apostle Paul who writes this, he had an impressive resume. And if you flip forward two passages to Philippians 3, you'll see his resume. His resume was much more impressive than mine. In fact, his resume was one that his contemporaries would have said, Paul, your resume is not only impressive to other people, your resume is impressive to God. God himself is endeared towards you, Paul, because of your accomplishments and your accolades and your pedigree. And yet Paul says that despite his resume, despite his pedigree, his true and lasting treasure is Christ. Look at verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Philippians 3, 7, after he gives his resume, here's what he says. But whatever gain I had, whatever accolades I've received, whatever I've accomplished, whatever I've accumulated, whatever my pedigree would say about me, whatever gain I've had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as 
rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is saying, I want to value most what is most valuable, and I want to love supremely what is supremely lovely. Christ himself, our certain treasure. And because the outcome is secure and our treasure is certain, we're liberated from living for our resume. And we're free simply to live for the sake of Christ and the love of other people. You know what we are? We're walk-ons. You know what a walk-on is? Imagine a college basketball team. They've got maybe, I don't know, eight or ten scholarships. They're going to go find eight or ten players, maybe, who are talented enough that the team is willing to say, if you'll come play for our school, we'll pay for your education. But there's more than eight to ten people on a team, so they'll have, I don't know, maybe four or five additional spots, guys who need to be on the team, who aren't good enough to warrant a scholarship. And so they will have walk-ons, guys who are better than the average player, but not really good enough for meaningful involvement. And those guys will get to dress out, and they'll be on the practice squad, and they'll show up at games. And occasionally, the coach will put the walk-on in. And when the walk-on goes into the game, the crowd goes crazy because the walk-on is the everyman. I can relate to that guy. I played with him at the rec last week. He's a little better than me. And I can cheer for him because he, like, he lives in my same stratosphere. He's not, you know, 6'11 and can jump out of the gym. I can relate to him. So the, the crowd goes crazy and they cheer for him. You know when the coach puts the walk-on in? When the game is in hand. When the outcome is certain. The walk-ons don't go in if it's a four-point game with 30 seconds left. You don't see them in the game at that time. If the team's up 25 with a minute left, that's when the walk-ons go in. We're walk-ons. Christ on the cross has done the hard work necessary to secure the outcome, and we've been put in to live these lives in freedom. We get to live courageously in love with all of our hearts and with all of our energy. This is the final quarter of our last game. That's what our life is, and so we get to play with total abandon and joy, and I'm so thankful for my friend Mark, who lived fully engaged in service to others until the very end. He was bound to a wheelchair, and yet he didn't let lack of health or lack of energy become an excuse for him on why he couldn't or wouldn't serve. Rather, he gave himself diligently and faithfully to what God had called him to do in service of others so that third graders in our church might come to better understand and know the love of God in Christ. And I'm so thankful to him that he invested a full year of his life. In fact, the last year of his life invested it in the spiritual development of my oldest son. And I'll be forever grateful to him for that. Now, even though the outcome is secure and our treasure is certain, here's what's different about this is where the walk-on analogy falls apart. So if, if the heckler is going to say anything, this is it, man. This is where it falls apart. The outcome is secure, but our work is completely urgent and eternally important. Our work remains somehow in the mystery of God still completely urgent and eternally important. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For I know, his confidence in the outcome, that through your prayers, for I know that through your prayers, God by his spirit is going to secure my deliverance. What is he saying? He's saying that ultimately my trust is in the sovereign God on high to bring about his purposes, but he's going to effectuate his purposes through the prayers of his people. What does that mean? That means that our prayers matter in the story of God and he uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. So if you're like I am and you struggle to pray because you think God's sovereign, he's in control, what, is my, what does it really matter? 
my whisperings in the dark, what difference do they really make? In the mystery of God, he has everything in control and he uses and relies upon your prayers to make it happen. So Paul says our work is important. Verse 20, he goes on to say that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. What's he saying? I am a soul with a body. I am a temporal person. I have flesh and blood. God has put breath into my lungs and I am living on earth and my body matters and my work matters. And I'm not just playing out the scenes in someone else's script. What I do matters. He goes on 22 to say, if I am to live in the flesh, in other words, for so long as God puts breath in my lungs and I have a body and I am living here among you, that means fruitful labor for me. Not meaningless labor, not it doesn't really matter, fruitful labor. And then down in verse 25, he defines what that means. Fruitful labor for Paul means this, for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. That all that people would say about us, about you, Christian, that because of your entrepreneurship, because of your management, because of your service, because of the way that you prepare food, the way that you vacuum, the way that you disciple, the way that you evangelize, teach, give, share, the way that you reconcile accounts in your accounting job, whatever you do, that because of the way you're doing it, they would have ample cause to glory in Christ. Not to glory in you, not even to glory in the work that you do, but because of you and the work that you do and the way that you do it, that they would have ample cause to glory in Christ. That would be fruitful labor for us. That the work that we do would bring about progress and joy in the faith of other people. So let me ask this question. Is your work bringing about the progress and joy of the faith of other people? If it's not, then might this be a pivot point, a time to just refocus so that our work takes on the full meaning that God intends, that it would be fruitful labor, not fruitless, not worthless, not vain, not disappearing, but fruitful, that it would bear the fruit that he intends, that it would be for the progress and joy of the faith of others. I think that most of us here probably stay pretty busy. I bet there aren't many people here who are just idle and need an encouragement to get it in gear. Most people here, I think, are quite busy. But here's what we have to remember. Busyness, for its own sake, is not necessarily good. Activity is not the same as accomplishment. Busyness, misdirected, is counterproductive. So busyness is not the name of the game. The idea here is, are we giving ourselves to the work that God has called us to in the way that God has called us to do it so that it's fruitful? When my wife and I had been married about two years, we lived in a small apartment in New York City. We had a neighbor, Mr. Peters. He's about 75 years old, from Pennsylvania originally, had moved to the city decades ago. Now, New York isn't like Texas. It's not really a, you see someone in the morning, it's a, howdy, y'all, how you doing? It's, it's not real outgoing and friendly like that. People wear black, and they don't talk a whole lot, and you don't make too much eye contact. So we had a New York kind of relationship with Mr. Peters. We'd say hi, we were friendly, we were cordial, but we didn't know him very well. And after having lived in that apartment for about a year, Katie and I are sitting down to dinner, and our dinner table is like the size of this podium. Our apartment, our apartment was 250 square feet, so we're literally like, this is our table, and we're sitting down across from each other, and 
We hear a knock on the door, open it up, it's Mr. Peters. And Mr. Peters holds out two champagne flutes with about a half inch of dust sitting in them and says, here, I want you to have these. And I say, wow, Mr. Peters, what a surprise. Thank you for these champagne flutes. We will look forward to using these. And he says, you're welcome. And he turns and he goes back down the hall. And so I set these aside and my wife and I are kind of puzzling, like, what, what is that? Start to get back to dinner. Another knock on the door. Open it up. Mr. Peters again. He holds out something else. I don't remember what it was. And he says, here, I want you to have this too. I say, wow, Mr. Peters, thank you. That's so generous of you. What's going on? What, what is motivating you to bring us these nice gifts? And he said, well, I'm actually, I'm leaving tomorrow and I got to clean up my apartment. He said, why don't you come down and come into my apartment and see if there's anything else you want. And so we say, okay. We walk down the hall, we go into his apartment, and what we see immediately is that he's lived in this apartment for probably 35 years. It's never been renovated, updated, cared for. The landlord has been totally negligent of it. Bare concrete floors, peeling paint, uh, crumbling stucco. It's dank. There's stuff piled up. The appliances are 20 years older than we were. It was, a, it, was a really, it was a really sad setup. And what we saw was that Mr. Peters had no family, very few friends. He was living by himself, somewhat reclusive. And as we started to talk to Mr. Peters, he's telling us that he can't survive another winter in New York, and so he's got to leave. And I said, well, where are you going? He said, I'm going west. I said, well, do you have family out there? And he says, no, I don't know anyone out there. So I'm just going to California because it's warm. And as we're talking to Mr. Peters and as we're learning his story, the Holy Spirit impresses on me, Christian, you've got to share the gospel with this guy. This guy is struggling. He's suffering. He's at the end of his life. He's feeling desperate. You have to share the hope of Christ with him. And why have you not done so before? And so I go back to my apartment. I grab a Bible. I say, Mr. Peters, you've given me so many nice gifts. I wonder, would you be willing to receive this gift from me? This is the Bible, and this, these, these are the words of the God of all creation, whom I worship and love, and I think is the hope of the world, and I'd like for you to tell you, I'd like to tell you why. And so I open it up, start to read a passage. Mr. Peter starts crying, not a moved cry, not a happy cry, an angry cry. And I say, Mr. Peters, what's going on? And he says, I was raised in a fundamentalist religious home, and my parents read the Bible all the time, and my parents abused me, and that's why I had to run away from home, and that's why I ended up in the city, and I want nothing to do with your Bible, and I want nothing to do with your God. Now, it might have been, with more time, we could have built a relationship with Mr. Peters, could have had him into our apartment, could have eaten dinner with him, could have had a chance to share with him a winsome and compelling presentation of the gospel that was different than what he thought it to be. But because of my negligence, having lived as his neighbor for a year and not having engaged him, this was his final night, and on the next morning, he left. And I asked him if he would give me the contact information of the hotel he was going to stop at along the way in Arizona, and he did. And I called the hotel when he was supposed to have arrived, and the hotel said, we have no record of any Mr. Peters, and so I have no idea where he went or what happened to him. I know that he abandoned his apartment and left everything in there because he didn't have any family or friends to take it. What might have been if instead of just being busy with all the things that we were busy with in our life, and we weren't idle, we were busy. We were involved in all kinds of stuff. We were volunteering. We did a lot of stuff at our church. We were feeding the homeless. 
We were really meaningfully engaged in a lot of activity, and yet this thing that God had put before us, a neighbor who needed to know the love and kindness and compassion of Jesus, didn't receive it because we neglected to be a neighbor to that man. So it's not about busyness. It's about are we doing the work that God has put before us and the way that he's called us to do it so that it brings about fruitfulness, progress and joy in the faith of others. But we think we have so much time, don't we? We think we have so much time. We suspect that we can get to it later. Listen, I'm only 37. I've got decades left to do that hard thing that God has called me to do. I need to focus on my resume now. I've got some business to attend to. I've got to get things done. I can lean into that kind of love and character development and obedience to God later once I have more time. When I have more time, I'll reach out to that neighbor. When I have more time, I'll begin volunteering with the youth. When I have more time, I'll think about fostering or adopting a child. Later, when I have more time, I'll bravely tell that coworker about Jesus finally. You know who we're like? We're like this guy. Take a look at this picture. This is a real publication of a guy. Actually, this isn't Photoshop. This guy is mowing his yard with an F4 tornado in the field behind his home. And what he says here is, it looks much closer in the photo, but I was keeping my eye on it. That's, that's absurd. I mean, that is totally absurd. And that's what we're like. The finish line is coming, and we say, no, no, I'm keeping my eye on it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I know time is short, but I'm keeping my eye on it. I'll, I'll get to that later when I have more time. Maybe. Maybe we have more time. I met a friend named Isla. She works at the grocery store here just across the parking lot from our church. And she works in the bakery. And we were talking one time, and I found out she goes to Woods Edge. And, she, and I said, oh, I go to Woods Edge as well. And she says, yeah, I know. I've seen you preach before. And I said, oh, okay. She said, actually, I want you to tell the church something. And I said, well, Isla, I'm just a, I, I'm just a guest speaker. I don't, I don't know if I have authority to, like, just bring all messages. But, okay, like, tell me, what is it? She said, I want you to tell Woods Edge that I'm heartbroken because nobody from Woods Edge comes in here. And I said, oh, well, Isla, I think, I think actually there's a lot of folks from Woods Edge who shop here. She said, no, 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 I'm not saying who shop here. What I'm saying is most of the people who work at this store are Muslim, like I am. She was born in a Muslim country, but she had come to become a, a follower of Jesus. She said, most of us here are Muslim, and every week, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses travel from inside the loop in Houston to come up here and hand out tracts and proselytize, and never once has anyone from Wood's Edge come in here to tell us about the hope that is in Christ. And I want you to tell them we don't have much time. And I think she's right. We don't have much time. I felt convicted by Isla's words, and I promised to pass along the message, and so I have. Isla, if you're here, I've, I've done what you've asked. Shane Claiborne is a guy who lives in Philadelphia. He lives in a kind of a hospitality house. He's a hippie-looking guy with dreadlocks. He doesn't have like a real formal nonprofit organization. It's just a bunch of folks who love and are trying to follow Jesus, and they leave their home open to serve people in the inner city. And so they have a lot of runaway youth and drug addicts and homeless people sleep on their couch. Really interesting guy. He wrote a book called The Irresistible Revolution. And there's a quote in it that has really stuck with me for a lot of years. Here's what he says. He says, all around you, people will be tiptoeing 
through life just to arrive at death safely. But dear children, do not tiptoe. Run, hop, skip, or dance. Just don't tiptoe. And if we're going to accept the challenge not to tiptoe towards the finish line, but rather to run and skip and dance with the joy and freedom that is ours because the outcome is secure, then it, it, it might look like a change in our life. For some of you, it might mean moving overseas to reach people who don't have clean water or electricity and living there and investing your whole life there and serving there full time. For some of you, it might mean starting a business or learning a trade. It might mean opening your home to care for a foster child. It might mean for you that you're just willing to speak a positive word about Jesus in your workplace. For some of you, maybe it means seeking that promotion at work that's available. And for others of you, maybe it means declining that promotion at work that was offered to you. Maybe for some of you, it's even more humble and obscure. Maybe for you, it means to serve weekly in the third grade Sunday school class, which, by the way, recently lost a really fantastic teacher. And to the degree that we do any of these things that God calls us to do, to do our work in the way that he's called us to do it so that it bears fruit, to the degree that you do any of these things or make any of these changes, that we would not do any of it out of duty or obligation, but rather because we want Christ to be honored in our body and we want to be engaged in the fruitful labor that produces joy and progress in the face, uh, faith of others. Friends, our eulogies will be written soon. Soon, someone will have to decide whether there will be enough chairs to accommodate the mourners at your funeral. And very soon, the fourth quarter will expire and we will be out of time. There will be no further opportunity to love people deeply or to hold out the hope of Christ to those who don't know him to serve someone significantly and sacrificially in Christ's name. And on that day, we'll come before God completely exposed, clothed either in the righteousness of Christ alone or cloaked in the fruitlessness of our vain pursuits. Either having been about Christ and his kingdom standing in his grace or holding a pile of ashes that was our resume, the thing that we thought would be our lasting treasure that is going to scatter in the wind. When life is our accomplishments and our accolades and our accumulation, then death is loss. But when living is Christ, dying is gain. If your trust is already in Christ today, then today set your gaze on him, your certain treasure. See that he's your true and lasting treasure. Make it your singular ambition to magnify him in your life so that Christ will be exalted in your body, whether by life or by death. And if your trust is not yet in Christ, if you're here today and you've never embraced Christ, you've never put your trust in him for relationship with God, then please know that God's word is clear on this point. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing to please God. All of your accomplishments and resume virtues, however great and impressive they may be, will disintegrate before a holy God. All of your art ribbons and football trophies and impressive titles and jobs and high income and your beautiful life and your beautiful wife and whatever it else it is that you put your hope in and whatever else it is that you think is going to make you okay, all of those things are going to be gone. And your only hope is to cling in faith to Christ and to hold on for dear life. Friends, time is short. I want to follow the example of my friend Mark and live my life in such a way that I can agree with this passage 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and then to die is gain. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful this morning for your kindness to us, that you give us godly friends and neighbors and coworkers like Mark. Thank you for his life and the way that he lived it. Thank you for using today to remind us of our own mortality and fragility and frailty and reminding us that indeed time is short. And yet for those of us who have trusted in Christ and who follow you, you have given us a holy calling to take all of the gifts and talents you've given us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ in fruitful labor for the progress and joy of the faith of others. God, would you help us today by the power of your spirit to live lives that honor you, to live in courage knowing that the outcome is certain because of what Christ has done on the cross. Would you make us a people together who have a single ambition that Christ would be honored in our bodies. Father, we love you and we worship you together this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.